You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To be saved means to be in a story where the characters need saving. That ground floor reality motivates many theologians and Bible scholars to think of Christianity in terms of the story that it projects onto the world and discloses within the world, treating historical context as something within which the Bible happens and something that the Bible makes happen. In his recent book, Reading Backwards, Richard Hayes, Dean of Duke Divinity School, explores the ways that the four canonical gospels recast the narratives and oracles and songs of the Old Testament in light of the Jesus movement, both finding meaning for Jesus in those texts and finding meaning in those texts because Jesus happens. Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled to welcome Richard Hayes to the show. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Hayes. Glad to be with you. Well, Jesus books are selling well these days, and I want to start out letting you distinguish your project in reading backwards from some other recent Jesus books. What does this short book have to offer readers that they won't find in Zealot or How Jesus Became God or Christ Actually? I actually don't know the third of those books, so I can't oh, a, comment on that one. All right. But uh, with, with the others, most of the Jesus books that you see are attempts to reconstruct what the authors take to be the historical facts about Jesus of Nazareth by digging back behind the narratives that we find in the canonical Gospels. Uh, so that a book like Zealot, which, by the way, is a book that really just recycles some very old and tired and largely discredited theories about Jesus as a zealot revolutionary, mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's really not a, an important piece of scholarship in any sense. Uh, but, but it's an example of somebody saying, Despite what the Gospels say, Jesus really was X or Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the book, How Jesus Became a, uh, a God, uh, this is the Bart Ehrman book I believe you're referring to. Is yes, that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just named those two because I've reviewed both of them recently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I hope that what I'm saying about this will agree with your reviews. <laughs> mm-hmm. So far, yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, the... You know, the Ehrman book takes the view that it isn't really until the composition of the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, that it occurs to anybody to develop the idea that Jesus was actually divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there lies behind that a kind of theory of evolutionary development. Jesus was really a simple Galilean prophet. And then later, after his death, a bunch of myths and legends sprung up uh, around his memory, and people started attributing to him all sorts of uh, titles and and claims that he would not have made for himself, and so on. And so there's a, it's an attempt to excavate uh, the Gospels and discover some hypothetical historical facts behind the Gospels. Mm-hmm. My book is a very different kind of book in that it specifically does not try to do that. It tries to take the testimony of the four Gospels as narrative literature, as theological literature, and to explicate uh, the characterization of Jesus that we find in the texts. Uh, 
Now, one of the claims in my book is, in fact, that doing that shows that this idea of Jesus as the embodiment of the God of Israel is present in the gospel tradition from the very first, that it's, as it were, all the way down. Mm -hmm. I, I would add to that, even though I don't discuss this in this book, that you find the same thing in the letters of Paul, which are the earliest extant Christian documents. Right. Uh, so it, uh, uh, my book is not intending to develop a history of uh, how early Christology developed, uh, but it does perhaps have implications for that discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, the tool that you use to show how that works so nicely is figural reading. And in the book's opening chapter, which would have been the first lecture in the series, and you can talk about those lectures if you'd like, you make reference to Eric Auerbach's notion of figural reading. So in what ways does that mode of interpretation depart from some other common ways to read the biblical references in the canonical Gospels? Right. Uh, well, thank you for mentioning the lecture series. This book is really the published version of a series of lectures called the Halcyon Lectures that I gave at Cambridge University last year. Um, and so that explains some of the character of the book. It's a, it's a brief book um, that tries to move uh, rather broadly through uh, all four Gospels. Um, the, the Auerbach reference is very important. Uh, Eric Auerbach was a German-Jewish literary critic uh, in the middle of the 20th century who did very important work on the history of Western literature. And Auerbach gives a definition of figural interpretation as a kind of reading. Here's, here's the quotation from Auerbach, that establishes a connection between two events or persons in such a way that the first signifies not only itself, but also the second, while the second involves or fulfills the first. And then he goes on to say that this means that in figural interpretation, it's a matter of discovering correlation between two events or persons, both of uh, which exist in history, uh, in time, and, and seeing retrospectively a connection between them that illuminates both in a new way. Mm. It seems to me that's a perfect description of what's going on in the Gospels. It's not the case that the Old Testament offers crystal ball predictions about a future Messiah. It's that the Old Testament tells stories, many of which do express a hope that God in the future will somehow vindicate Israel. Uh, but it isn't until after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that readers then read Jesus' story against the background of the Old Testament and discover in the Old Testament new and mind-blowing meanings. There's a kind of an aha experience that happens when you go back <clears throat> to take an obvious example and read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 uh, in light of the cross and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's the sort of thing that, that Auerbach means when he talks about figural interpretation. And he applies this to a whole range of, of world literature. He has long discussions of Dante's use of figural interpretation in mm -hmm. the Divine Comedy, for example. 
but the same technique is already there in the gospel writers. Okay. Yeah, and, and this is one of those things I like that this mode of reading the gospels avoids what you call the crystal ball tendency on one hand, and then on the other hand, the sort of ex post facto propagandistic invention view that you know, some of, well, I mean, some biblical scholars, but a lot of popular sort of anti-religion writers tend to attribute that, you know, this was entirely the invention of third or fourth century Christians who had an axe to grind and therefore invented a divine Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I think that this figural reading allows you to see that the Gospels are looking backward and forward, or and the Old Testament, for that matter, is looking backward and forward and telling a story that's that encompasses both of those without being either extreme. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not always the case that these correspondences are made explicit by the gospel writers. Sure. Uh, a, a wonderful example to me is if you take the story of Jesus stilling the storm in the gospel of Mark, uh, you get to the end of that story and the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mm -hmm. Well, if you are steeped in Israel's scripture, you know there's only one possible answer to that question, and that answer is fleshed out and illuminated in an extraordinary way when you read the story of Jesus stilling the storm uh, in juxtaposition with Psalm 107. Right, right. So the... Mark doesn't quote Psalm 107 or any of the other passages in the Old Testament that speak about God's power over the sea, but um, any reader who uh, has been shaped and has the Old Testament in his or her bones will know what this means about the identity of Jesus, even though it's not explicitly stated. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to make sure, I mean, our listeners should know that you're not by any means nullifying the value of reading Old Testament reading the Old Testament, pardon me, through the lenses of, that a historically conscious pre-Christian reconstruction offers. Instead, you say that the literal sense, quote, becomes the vehicle for latent figural meanings unsuspected by the original author and readers, close quote. Now, I pick up on two or three important distinctions in that brief passage. Could you elaborate a little bit on how meanings can be latent in a text and what theological peril or what theological benefit an un unsuspecting original author does and does not pose. Right. Uh, that is an important and, and very condensed statement that you just quoted out of my book. Um, one, of, one of the values of figural interpretation is that it precisely insists on the meaningfulness and integrity of the Old Testament in its own historical context. Uh, that when, um, let me think of an example here, when you read the story of the Passover mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament, it really is a story about God having acted to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's not only a kind of figurative story that points forward uh, to something about the Christian Eucharist or something like that. It's a, uh, it really is an event in the past where God acted to do something for Israel. And so mm -hmm. uh, a the Old Testament can be read and 
in a way, should be read as having its own witness, the sort of thing that Brevard Childs liked to call the per se witness of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not simply trumped or superseded in some way by the New Testament. But when you read the story of Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples as a Passover meal, uh, and, and when you have the significations of Jesus as the Lamb of God mm -hmm. uh, set alongside the story of the Passover, both of those stories take on new resonance and significance. So, yes, to answer your, your question, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to negate, uh, the, as it were, the original historical sense of the text. Uh, I'm simply saying, if you could think about it this way, Really, what figural interpretation presupposes is that it's really God who is the author of the events right, in history right. uh, that creates these correspondences, which are then recognized and discerned by uh, the early Christians as they undertake this process of rereading the Old Testament in light of uh, the story of Jesus. Right, so it's not as if Israel was sitting in exile in the 6th century B.C. saying, boy, I hope these texts mean something at some point. Right. <laughs> well said, exactly. All right, good, good, good. And and like I said, I mean, one of the things I like most about this mode of reading is that it does allow a an informed historical reading as well as a reading that takes seriously what the New Testament is doing. Uh, and I'm going to quote you again here, and this time from your chapter on Mark. Uh, you argue that the good stuff, and that's my paraphrase, not the quote yet, in biblical Christology comes not through, quote, flat propositional language, close quote, quote, but, quote, in the form of narrative through hints and allusions that protect, that project, pardon me, the story of Jesus onto the background of Israel's history, close quote. Now, I, I have to admit, when I read that, my first thought, because I have been reading these other Jesus books, was, hey, finally, a Jesus book that gets the Gospels our narratives. Uh, but then I realized that I learned to read that way in the 90s from you and N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann, among others. I know my reasons, but I want you to tell our listeners what your reasons are for insisting at every turn upon narrative as the interpretive mode when one does Christology. Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Nathan. That's a that's an important question. When I was a, a student in seminary, um, in the 1970s, I had come out of a background as an English major, as an undergraduate at Yale. Mm -hmm. And when I first encountered what I saw largely German biblical criticism doing with the Gospels, I thought, what are they doing to these texts? Rather than, than reading them as stories, which is the form in which they present themselves to us, Mm -hmm. There was an attempt to sort of pluck out, for example, individual Christological titles, whether it's Son of Man, uh, Son of God, uh, Messiah, uh, whatever, and to try to reconstruct something like a pretextual history of the development of those titles, mm -hmm. but without any reference at all to the way they were actually functioning in the narratives. Um, and it wasn't until I read Hans Frey's very important book, also written in the mid-1970s, called The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, uh, 
that I began to understand what was going on there. Um, it, it really was a lack of an ability to read this literature as the kind of literature it is. You, you can't understand what Matthew or Mark or Luke is up to without realizing that they're storytellers and that you can't just pull out uh, a title in isolation and then start speculating about where it came from and what it means. You have to see how it's used within the story, how it fits into the what you might call the, the narrative grammar of the story and the way in which it acquires meaning through the responses uh, of characters in the story to the language that's used. So um, I, I do think it's quite a, a critical point. And I think Christians uh, may be, or at least some Christians may be particularly susceptible to going off the rails here because we tend to approach the reading uh, of the New Testament as something that is uh, offers us the raw material for doctrinal propositions right. uh, or confessional statements of some kind. Now, there's, a, there's a place for confessional statements. Uh, I do believe that. But the first thing we have to do is, is to read the story in the form it is presented to us. I mean, it's interesting that if you, even if no matter what sort of view you have about the inspiration of Scripture, God didn't choose to give us the New Testament in the form of, let's say, um, uh, the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Formulation or the Westminster Confession. God instead seems to have chosen to allow the early Christian community to witness to the good news of Jesus through telling these stories and through uh, the very occasional collection of pastoral letters that you have in most of the rest of the New Testament. Um, now, that's an interesting fact, and I think we need to honor that and respect it as readers mm -hmm. of the text. Am I speaking to your question? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and I'm reminded of, uh, you know, N.T. Wright's dictum in uh, the New Testament and the people of God that we should read the book that God actually gave us. Yeah. Instead and of one, trying to say, you know, God, you need a good editor. Let me help you here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and one of the things about the book that God gave us is that it has four Gospels, not one, not right. one harmony. And that each of these four Gospel writers, and this is one of the points of my book, each one tells the story differently, and each one has a distinctive style of reading or appropriating the Old Testament as witness to Jesus. And they're... Mm -hmm. They're actually, they're convergent in that all four of them do identify Jesus as the embodiment of the God of Israel, but they do it in interestingly different ways and draw on different Old Testament texts in order to make that claim. Right. Well, and one of those connections is one that you find in Matthew, uh, and of course I've been, I've, I'm a bivocational English professor and preacher, uh, so I've been preaching through the book of Matthew this uh, this most recent year of the lectionary. And when you turn your attention to Matthew, you highlight perpetual presence, which is a theme that no commentary I've ever read denies as central to the first gospel. But you also argue, and this is what I, I can't believe I couldn't see before, but that's why we read books about the Bible, that perpetual presence attributed to Jesus is in fact a hint of an allusive complex identity 
of the Father with the Son. Tell our listeners a little bit, because this is one of my favorite parts of the early going of the book, how you arrive at an, at an earlier high Christology than some scholars do with the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. Um, you're absolutely right that everybody recognizes that the Gospel of Matthew begins uh, in the birth narrative in, in the uh, uh, the promise of Jesus' birth by saying you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get in the middle of the text Jesus saying to the disciples that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm present with you. And then at the end of the book in the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew 28, you get uh, I'm with you always to the close of the age. But if you if you really stop and ask yourself, what does it mean for a human being, for a, for a character in the narrative to make those sorts of claims about a perpetual presence, and you start thinking about that against the background of, uh, again, the Old Testament, you realize that it is only God who is perpetually present and stands outside of time. It's only God who can say things like, uh, uh, my words will not pass away. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, think about that against the background of a text like Isaiah 40, mm-hmm. verses 7 and 8. Right. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Right. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So it, when Jesus says, uh, my words will not pass away, that can be true if and only if he's claiming that this really is the word of God and that he as the speaker is, in fact, God with us. Mm-hmm. But one could go on and on giving examples like that. Uh, the, in, there's a whole uh, near the end of my Matthew chapter. I've gathered up a bunch of texts uh, where God promises perpetual presence with Israel uh, from a number of different uh, prophetic texts. Uh, and clearly, Matthew has echoed precisely that language in Jesus' promise at the end of his gospel: "Behold, I'm with you always." Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's that sort of analysis that makes you realize what's really being asserted here. And it's interesting because there are other critics uh, who've written about exactly this theme of uh, Jesus as Emmanuel, Jesus as divine presence, but they get right up to the point of realizing what this might mean, but then they'll back off and say something like, oh, well, this just means Jesus is an agent of God or an intermediary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that isn't that isn't what Matthew is saying. Matthew's making a stronger claim than that, right? And I mean, even before the the canonical prophets, I mean, in Exodus three and four, I mean, that's one of the three names of Yahweh. You know, it's I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am what I am, and then I will be with you. Yes. You know, that's sort of the three great names of God. And again, it's one of those things where I mean, perhaps because of my own education in biblical studies. I never made that connection, but I mean, I you know, when you lay it out in that chapter, uh, it's hard for me to see why I didn't see it before. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the kind of, um, it's the sort of aha experience that you get when you start 
trying to do this kind of reading backwards that I recommend. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to move on to Luke. The distinction that you draw between Matthew and Luke is one of literary style more than high Christology versus low Christology. Now, with regards to Luke, you point to, and I'm going to quote you again, quote, a powerful but indistinct sense of analogy between God's saving acts for Israel in the past and the new liberating events coming to fulfillment in the story of Jesus, close quote. Give our readers a sense of a pericope or two in which that difference between Matthew and Luke emerges. Um, well, okay, so you're asking not about the uh, what I mean by this powerful but indistinct sense of analogy. Oh, but, I am, I am. I mean, where's a place or two in Luke where that happens that you wouldn't see, for instance, in, in Matthew? Uh, well, if you, again, maybe I'm just thinking about these examples because we're in Advent and leading up to Christmas, and so sure, I, have, why not? <laughs> I have birth narrative uh, texts very much in mind. But if you look at the way Luke uh, constructs his story of the birth of Jesus and the promises that are made and, and the responses here, Luke never says in any of this stuff, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. We, mm -hmm. don't, get, we don't get proof texts in the way Matthew does in his birth narrative. But we have uh, Luke instead having, for example, Mary uh, sing... Uh, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So there's an allusion backwards to the story of Israel, the story of Abraham, but there's, there's not an explicit claim being made that there's something about the birth of Jesus that so corresponds to those events. They're simply set in juxtaposition to one another. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that's the sort of thing that I mean. Even, even the idea of um, the, uh, the story that you get here of uh, Zechariah uh, and mm -hmm. his wife being childless and, you know, at, and praying and at last being given a child. Well, that's, uh, you know, there's the story of Hannah uh, in in First Samuel, there's the whole story of uh, Abraham and Sarah that sort of looms in the background, mm -hmm. but those stories are never. Luke doesn't actually point the reader back to those stories with explicit quotations. So that's the kind of thing I mean. You you have a sense that oh, we've seen things like this happening before mm -hmm. in the story of God's gracious dealing with His people and. Look here, it's happening again in the case of Zechariah and uh, uh, Elizabeth. All right, very good. Well, one of the great moments in the synoptics is in Luke when Jesus weeps for the doom of Jerusalem and laments that he could not gather them up as a mother hen does her chicks. I imagine a good number of our listeners can see the implications there for gender and theological language, but you maintain that this is yet another moment when, contrary to some scholarly opinions, Luke's Jesus puts himself in the role of Adonai in terms of biblical allusion. Say a little bit more about that approach to Jerusalem. 
Yeah, this is one of the really striking things that I hadn't seen before I started working on these lectures and this book. Um, and you're absolutely right that this thing about Jesus uh, using the uh, the metaphor of the uh, the mother hen and the chicks is, is one of the things that feminist theologians have appropriated uh, eagerly to find uh, a, a female image being applied to God in the New Testament. But and you know I, that's that's not incorrect. It's it's uh, that certainly is what it is. It's a metaphor. Uh, it's not a title or something like that. But but the thing that's really amazing to me is when you take Jesus saying that about himself, how often I've desired uh, to uh, take you under my wings. And then you read it against the background of a text like Psalm 91, which speaks of living in the shelter of the Most High, God is refuge and fortress. And then it says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Mm -hmm. there, and that's not the only Old Testament passage. There, there's uh, uh, In Deuteronomy 32 you find a similar use of the uh, uh, being covered under the wings of Yahweh. And um, so when Jesus says of Jerusalem, how often I've desired to take you under my wings, uh, again, it's against this background of Old Testament imagery in which this same imagery is used of the one God of Israel. So it, it just reinforces, I think, uh, the remarkable claim that Luke is making. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, when I was speaking before, I didn't have the text open in front of me, but uh, in, in that passage, Jesus says, listen to what he actually says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? The, the thing that's, that's odd about that within Luke's narrative is that According to Luke, Jesus hasn't been to Jerusalem before. This, this is in the middle of the uh, what's often called the Luke and travel narrative, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And you have to ask yourself, what's he talking about? What does he mean, how often I've tried to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood and you weren't willing? Mm -hmm. I mean, that only makes sense if this is the speech of Israel's God. Very good. Now, one of the things about this that we've mentioned already is that, you know, this is a, a very elusive, very indirect mode. Uh, do you think that this speaks to an, a, an assumed sophistication on the part of Luke's audience that Matthew doesn't assume, or am I making too much of that distinction? Uh, possibly. It's hard to say, because if well, one of the one of the things you have to recognize is that this this is a very subtle piece of literary art, and Luke presumably is in his gospel writing volume one of a two-volume work, and 
volume one more or less ends with the stories in chapter 24, post-resurrection, for example, the road to Emmaus story, in which Jesus actually explicitly says to these followers who don't even recognize him, uh, you know, oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, prophets have declared, wasn't it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, this is Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. It seems to me that what's happening when you get to that point in the narrative is that Luke, is it's almost as though he's saying to his reader, didn't you get it? Go back, read it again. Read it again now in light of the cross and resurrection and see how all these things in the scriptures can be seen as figuring through a glass darkly uh, these events surrounding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, so that then in volume two, in the, the apostolic speeches and acts, you get a much, much more explicit set of claims about the way in which the Psalms and the prophets are to be seen as prefiguring Jesus. So your question is, does Luke presuppose a more sophisticated readership? Possibly, but I think also possibly Luke is operating with a certain literary strategy that tries to bring readers along mm -hmm. through the gospel and acts than to go back and reread the story of Jesus and begin discerning correspondences that are more explicitly explained uh, in the second volume than in the first. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. And and once again, just to return to one of the central claims of this book, uh, this is another one of those episodes, The Road to Emmaus, that you just alluded to, that seems certainly to point to certainly significant problems with the distinction between so-called low and high Christologies in the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, obviously you're not going to find any Nicene Creed, Usia language in here. But on the other hand, it's also not something where uh, people are simply inventing these readings. I mean, I mean, you point out particular passages where there are allusive nods to Old Testament passages referring to Yahweh. What's at stake here, do you think? I mean, for Christians, for the academy, whatever, whatever constituency you want to talk about, in your attempt here to correct that sort of common notion that the Gospels of Mark and Luke have this low Christology? Well, it's partly just that we need to be better readers of these texts and, and not expect um, uh, not expect that everything be handed to us on a platter. Uh, that we're, we're being encouraged by these texts to put our roots down more deeply in Israel scripture and understand ourselves uh, as part of that story. So that's part of what's at stake. It's, it's probably just a matter of, of reading the text better. Uh, but it, it, it goes back maybe to the question you started with too, um, that it's just a mistake to think Luke has what's sometimes called a primitive Christology mm -hmm. uh, and, and doesn't identify Jesus in terms of any doctrine of incarnation or notion of 
embodiment of God. I just think that's wrong. I think Luke just has a different literary vocabulary mm -hmm. presenting this interpretation of Jesus. The, the, I think you mentioned this idea of Jesus as the redeemer of Israel. And uh, uh, readers who pick up the book, if you get to the end of my chapter on Luke, uh, I, I focus on the fact that the Emmaus disciples who are so discouraged say we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. and uh, But now they're disappointed because he was crucified and apparently failed. Mm -hmm. But the whole point of the literary irony going on there is that he is the one who's the redeemer of Israel. And if you go back and look, especially in, the, in Isaiah, about who's the redeemer of Israel, there's just passage after passage in which it is said that God, the Holy One of Israel, is your redeemer, using exactly the same language that Luke uses uh, in Luke 24. So there's, there's a, a very subtle and but once you see it, it's a very powerful claim about who Jesus is. Right, right. And what I'm seeing, I mean, as we talk about these Gospels and, and talk about, you know, this figure way to read them, is that your reading of them assumes that early Christians actually had a fairly, uh, and I, I hate even to use this word, but a fairly sophisticated ear for literary narrative that a lot of Jesus books assume couldn't have been the case among those early Jesus followers. Uh, I mean, is that is that a distinction that you'd want to make for your own book against some other Jesus books? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. Now, whether whether all actual readers did in fact have such sensitivities or not is, I think, a question that's very difficult to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the scholar James Sanders uh, wrote an essay a long time ago that I read that was very. Uh, influential for me in which he argued that part of what Luke is up to is embedding these biblical allusions in his narrative on the assumption that there are people who are exercising the office of teaching and interpretation in the early church and the expectation is that these uh, these passages from Luke's gospel would be read and then explained by teachers in the early church to uh, unpack the, the biblical allusions that are there. And I'm sure as, as part of the Gentile mission, that must have been the case, that not every person who joins an early Christian congregation will have this deep and comprehensive knowledge of Scripture. Right. It's certainly part of the Acts narrative, if nothing else, that a, a commentary upon Scripture is part of the gospel mission. Yeah, exactly. But, but I also want to say that this idea that, that the early hearers couldn't have heard this stuff uh, may partly rest on a kind of condescending assumption that ancient people were as ignorant of Scripture as we are. <laughs> uh, and I, I wonder about that. I mean, if you think about the ways in which images from popular culture, from films or songs or whatever, get disseminated in our culture, this, this kind of subtle allusion happens all the time, and we don't even consciously register it. I, I was walking with my wife through a mall yesterday and walked past some women's dress store, 
And it had a, a big sign in the window with big red letters. I, I'm sorry, white letters on a red sign that just said, what fun. Now, I'm, I'm willing to bet you that 99% of the people who walked by that sign realized, oh, that's an allusion to the song Jingle Bells. Um, but it's, it's only two words, mm -hmm. simple words, and, and yet, you know, because it's Christmas shopping season, you walk by and you see that sign and bang, the, the, the thing jumps to mind. Uh, and I think that there, at least for some of the communities of early Christian readers, um, the, these allusions to the Old Testament might function a bit like that, because they may have, especially the ones who come from some sort of Jewish synagogue background, may know these texts by heart in a way that we can only begin to imagine. Right. Well, I want to move on to John before we run out of time here, so... More than the synoptics you maintain, John actively teaches the reader and the audience to hear and to read figuratively. Um, what literary differences in John lend themselves to that figural endeavor? Well, uh, the point where I say that about teaching the reader, I'm thinking of the way that John sets up the story uh, in, by putting the, the story of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple, John puts that up near the very beginning of his story instead of at the end, the way the synoptics do. And uh, in, in this passage, he's asked by the authorities in the temple, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And as is often the case in John's Gospel, his hearers respond with a kind of literalistic, uh, flat-footed uh, interpretation of what he's saying, and they protest. But then John says, and this is what this is the answer to your question about John teaching the readers how to interpret. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It seems to me that at that point, early on in the narrative, John is, is teaching his readers how to read by saying, look, this is symbolic language. It's figural language. It's, it's establishing a figural correspondence between Jesus and the temple. And mm -hmm. if you only read it as saying the stones are going to be knocked down and Jesus will come back and put the stones back up again, you've misunderstood it. You have to read with this kind of alertness to figuration. Um, and it, so John is, is nudging us in the ribs and, and giving us instruction on how to read well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of an, an episode from about the middle of Dante's Inferno. I, I retaught it this fall uh, where Virgil and Dante are at some peril of not being allowed to advance through the gates of Dis. And eventually an angelic messenger opens the gates and he says, you only had to wait. Uh, and then Dante basically turns to the reader and says, hey, that was an allegory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just in case you missed that. In case you missed it, yeah. John is, is a little something like that here. That's a nice parallel. Very good. Well, when you say that Jesus, quote, assumes and transforms, close quote, Torah and temple, you're confronting another common reading of John as a theological text. 
what arguments have folks in the past marshaled to read John as a flatly supersessionist text, and how does your reading of John correct that reading? Yeah, this is a tricky question. Um, I, I mean, I don't mean by that that, that you pose a trick question, but I just mean it's a, it's a, it's a theologically complicated question. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a kind of simple-minded Christian supersessionism which would say, uh, well, all this Old Testament language about sacrifice and temple and law, it's all just done away with. That was, that was the past, but thank goodness Jesus came and, and now we don't have to think about that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and John is, is quite different on this. He wants to say that all of these things that were part of Israel's worship life, all of the festivals of Passover and Tabernacles uh, and, and all the other festivals, uh, the Festival of Dedication, all of these things point forward mm -hmm. to Jesus. And Jesus takes them up into himself and fulfills them. Uh, he, but, but that fulfillment doesn't mean that they've simply been now brought to an end, but it means that they've been taken up into a, a whole web of theological interpretation in which we see Jesus as the place of mediation between God and human beings in just the way Israel always understood the temple to be. So it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope act to get the emphasis of that correct and, and to say, no, this isn't a rejection of temple worship and sacrifice. It is a, a transformation of it that affirms it and, and carries it forward into something new because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All right, good, good, good. Well, perhaps my favorite image in this whole book is, is late in the book when you say that the biblical canon is a rhetorical repertoire for the use of the faithful. What does the church stand to gain when we let the gospel texts retain their particularity and even the tensions between them as we minister? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Nathan. Um, I, I sketched this just very briefly in this final lecture in the book, but I do think that there's something to be gained here in recognizing uh, these different rhetorical and theological strategies that we have in the Gospels. Um, and I actually, there's, there's a paragraph there where I offer some of my own hunches about how they might, which ones might speak to us most powerfully in our time. And uh, a couple of reviewers of the book have actually castigated me for that because they think it's presumptuous for me to sort of try to say, um, so they've, they've read it as though I were sort of ranking the value of the Gospels, and that's mm -hmm, not what I'm mm -hmm. trying to do. <laughs> I'm not ranking them, but I'm saying a Gospel like Mark, which has such a circumspect sense of the power of the mystery of Jesus' identity, is a text that I think speaks extremely powerful to people in the 21st century who don't, who realize it's not easy to in a straightforward and facile way about God. You know, well, encounter Mark, read Mark's witness and see how that speaks 
to that that situation that's the, that's the sort of thing i mean i think that if you want to engage the, the question about continuity and discontinuity with israel i think luke is a wonderful text to draw on to think about that because he's so clear about the the narrative continuity from israel's story into the story of jesus um just things like that um each gospel may at different times and occasions have a more apt word to speak perhaps just in the same way that different preachers or different members of a congregation now mm -hmm. might have distinctive contributions different uh, it's like paul's image of the body of christ with people being given different gifts by the one spirit for the building up of the body i think the same thing could be said of the different gifts and contributions of each of the four gospel writers mm -hmm. well very good well I'm going to back up to the very first chapter, listener, that's an allegory. Uh, you call for, quote, a conversion of the imagination, close quote, when we Christians read the Gospels. In what ways have our imaginations fallen with respect to the Bible? And in brief, what does a converted imagination do that's better than the alternative? Mm, another good question. Part of what's happened in modernity, really going back, I think, the 18th century has been that there's a kind of enlightenment rationalism that has expressed skepticism about the truth and reliability of the Bible. And Christians have often gotten caught, I think, in trying to defend the truthfulness of the Bible within the epistemological framework of enlightenment rationalism. So that if if somebody questions uh, the historical factuality of some text in in the Bible, the response has been to try to come back at it by defending how it could really how this really could have happened uh, in a historically factual way. I mean, the, the the sort of textbook illustration of that is that when you get the story of Jesus walking on the water, you have people who actually write things saying oh no this this is not this is not uh, a fabrication this really did happen but what happened was jesus was really walking on rocks that were hidden just underneath the water. right right okay <laughs> that's that's an example and and what happens is christians that's an extreme example but christians get sucked into trying to defend the truthfulness of the bible with reference to presuppositions that we shouldn't accept in the first place uh, and what i'd like to do is have us begin by having our world view and our imagination shaped by the biblical narratives themselves and then to let that speak to us without trying to get drawn into this apologetic argument that justifies truth of the Bible in terms of enlightenment rational. Very brief answer to a very complicated question, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the sort of thing that I mean. We're not just to read these texts as literal, factual transcripts and reports. They're more like poems or paintings or artistic renderings that are acts of testimony bearing witness 
to the identity of Jesus, and they have to be read as such. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this interview, uh, but in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners to hear about this book, about the Gospels, about Jesus, or about whatever else that we've not spent enough time on yet? The show is yours from here in the home stretch. Well, okay. Um, how long is the home stretch? As long as you want to make it. <laughs> okay. I won't make it very long. I mean, the first thing I want to say to you, Nathan, is thank you for uh, some very insightful and helpful questions that have actually allowed me to say quite a lot about uh, what is in the book. Um, what would I want listeners to hear about the book? I would want to hear, first of all, that in order to read the Gospels well, you have to go back again and again following where they point to Israel's scripture as the narrative and theological context in which the significance of Jesus has to be understood. Um, very often in some of the Protestant communities I've been a part of, there's a kind of disregard for the Old Testament. that You don't hear it preached on very much. Uh, you often hear things like, oh, the Old Testament God was an angry God, and but then Jesus came to teach us that God is love. Uh, it's sort of facile generalizations like that that just don't hold water. So, so the first thing I would say is about the wholeness of Scripture and about the Gospels as embedded in the story of Israel and carrying Israel's story forward uh, in such a way that you need to read the whole thing. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is to underscore the point you just asked me about, which is the value of the individual witness of each of the four Gospels. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the early church, there was a collection of a fourfold gospel which was very early on recognized as authoritative but there have always been two two opposite moves that have been in tension with that one is the attempt to say we can't have four gospels there must be only one that's the really true gospel and in fact uh, it's not just a matter of picking one but it's a matter of reconstructing something behind the gospels to find the real truth of Jesus I think that's a, a huge theological mistake. But the, the other mistake uh, would also be to try to reduce the diversity of the Gospels by producing a Gospel harmony. In, in ancient Christianity, there was a, a text, a Syriac text called the Diatessaron. Which right, Tatian. Yeah, yeah the, the, uh, the text that... that uh, tried to mush the gospel together in a blender. And St. Augustine was somebody else who uh, was uh, characteristically attempting to show how the gospels really can be harmonized. And it's just so interesting to me that that's not the form in which the early church's witness comes to us. It comes to us as a fourfold gospel witness that has diversity uh, as well as unity, which creates the conditions for what I think is a, a certain hermeneutical freedom about celebrating the distinctive ways in which each of the Gospels 
testify to Jesus. So I, I would want to emphasize that. Um, and I, I guess I would also want to emphasize the way in which these texts invite us into a conversation. They don't just talk at us, but they call us to uh, enter the world of these texts to see where they point and to see ourselves as the heirs of Israel's story who have a similar task in our own time of continuing to reflect on how God is at work in our midst and the ways in which the story of Jesus uh, doesn't end in the first century because uh, he is alive, he's a living Lord. And precisely if what they claim is at all true, he is in fact the God with whom we have to do, who is our creator and redeemer and continues to speak in our time. So I think my book gestures in that direction mm -hmm. um, and uh, invites readers into that task. So that's as much as I think I would say about it, except I would say of my own book what I would say of what the Gospels say about the Old Testament. Go back and read it. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, that will be the last word. Thank you, Dr. Hayes, for coming on the show. I'm delighted to have been in the conversation with you. Very good. This is Christian Humanist Profiles. It's a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. I want to thank you listeners for tuning in, and please come back to us again for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.